Uh, Remember what we have been looking at in the last number of weeks here in Romans chapter 11. Uh, We've been hearing God say that, yes, Israel as a nation, the ethnic Jews, those who are in his family line of Abraham, those who are were the people of God, these very people, they've been cut off from God. That these are the ones who were disobedient and stubborn. They've rejected God's plan for their relationship with Him. They've refused the rescue that's found in the provided Messiah, Jesus the Savior. And so God has turned from them. He's turned from them, and as it were, as a nation, He's let them go. Not every individual, and and we understand that because Paul puts himself as an example. He says, God has not forgotten them all forever. And so the question is, how many and how long? Yet, as much as it was the majority, he has graciously, through this act, through this cutting off of his own people, has been gracious to the rest of the world. He's come to the Gentiles, those who were not Jews, those who didn't belong to Abraham's family, to this family line. He came because God would send workers, he'd send missionaries to these, to these Jews and say, look, the Messiah is finally here, and they just wanted to kill them. And so they sent them off, and that spread them among the world where they could then tell the Gentiles about Jesus. And by God's grace, um, God saved many of them. And so uh, every person then who confessed Christ, even outside of this family that was supposed to be the family of God, They confessed Christ. They needed a Savior, and they realized it. They came to Him. So then last week, we discovered the characteristics of a Christian through the wonders and the warnings of the passage, Uh, seeing that through a careful remembering and taking note that the understanding of the truths that were there, that it always produces humility in a Christian. And that's the reality. You, You cannot even become a Christian without humility. A proud person cannot become a Christian. A proud person cannot stand at the cross and say, I have something to boast. It's not possible. The only way to the cross is through humility, by admitting that you have nothing to bring God, and you need Christ wholly. And so it produces, not just at, initially, but in the Christian life, produces humility. Because the passage warned us about arrogance and about pride. And so it produces humility in a Christian. And two other characteristics that flow from that humility. That was faithfulness. So the, the steadfastness, the continuing in the faith. And a fear. And, and not just the reverence or respect kind of fear. But a trembling at God. And at God's word and his judgment. These are the things that are produced in a Christian. Because, and they came out of this fact that Paul reminded us, listen, if he did not spare his own people who were known by his name, when they disobeyed him and disregarded him and did not repent, if he didn't spare them, then he definitely will not spare you. If you think you are something and you try to think you're going to live for him without a life of repentance, he says, you be warned. There's this severity of God that, that his judgment... Who, that is good and perfect and right, it will come on those who are unrepentant. Uh, those who do not uh, persist, though, in unbelief and unrepentance, they do come. He, di- he, he will indeed welcome them in. He, he will be kind to them. He will be merciful to them. So our passage this morning brings us back to this whole thought, considering the outcome, then, of the ethnic Jews, of the Israelites. Are they, as a nation, cut off forever? Has God said, I'm never going to again 
do something for them. I'm never going to reach out to them. I've just cut them off, and they as a people are going to die in terms of relationship with me. Other than a few exceptions like Paul or somebody here or there, are they cut off forever? That's what this passage is going to answer for us, and it's important. And so you're sitting here going, well, why does it matter? I'm not a Jew. Um, Why does it matter? I'm not like, yo, give me a pro-Israel badge. Why does it matter um, what their, their future is? It matters because God says it matters. Because God put it here, not just some Old Testament thought, an Old Testament promise, but here, again, a reminder of his covenant faithfulness. So if God, if you understand the covenant promises in the Old Testament and the promises he made to these people, and if God were to say, I cut them off and I cut them off for good, it would really warp your view of the covenants and it would really warp your view of grace even. Cannot people repent? Well, that's the grace of God that people can repent. If you confess your sins, he's faithful and just. So if we try to wrap our minds around Romans 11 and say, Has he really cut them off forever? Does it really mean that they don't get a chance again? We must be able to conclude what this passage concludes for us this morning. Is that no, as much as he's cut them off for a time, for a purpose, he's not cut them off forever. And that's good for us because we then, understanding that, we can begin to have a a calm assurance in the promises of God. And a calm assurance in his, his faithfulness to even us. And those, of, those loved ones that we have who don't yet know him, we can, we can rest going, okay, God is good. Okay, God is faithful. Yes, and God continues to be merciful. We need this. We, we need to know this for the people of Israel. We need to know their end so that we may trust in this God who makes promises and keeps them. So Romans chapter 11, if you have your Bible open, uh, go ahead and look at verse 25. That's where I'll begin reading through verse 32. This is God's word in Romans chapter 11. Verse 25 says, Lest you be wise in your own sight, I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. As it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob. And this will be my covenant with them. When I take away their sins. As regard, regards the gospel, they are enemies for your sake. But as regards election, they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. For just as you were at one time oh, disobedient to God, but now have received mercy because of their disobedience. So, they too have now been disobedient in order that by the mercy shown to you, they also may now receive mercy. For God has consigned all to disobedience that he may have mercy on all. In this passage, we have a further warning against being conceited or arrogant or proud. We thought that was done with last week when it it hurt your heart maybe to realize that God does not like proud people, and that pride has many forms. Maybe that hurts your feelings, but God does that for our sanctification, for our growth. We realize that we are not uh, right, and we do need Christ. Again, though, he gives us a further warning uh, against being conceited or in arrogant in verse 25. Uh, the ESV, as I was reading, begins with this, as the Greek does, lest you be wise in your own sight. 
Uh, other translations switch the order of the sentence. It says, I don't want you to be arrogant or, or ignorant of this mystery, brothers and sisters, so that you will not be conceited. And so it's a warning against being conceited so that they're not arrogant, so that they're not wise in their own sight. So then how do you avoid that? Because it is wrong to be wise in your own sight. Romans chapter 12, which I'm eager to get to, it it really gives us practical ins and outs of the Christian living. And here's what it says in verse 16. Live in harmony with one another. Don't be haughty, but associate with the lowly. And listen, never be wise in your own sight. Because we realize part of being proud is a self-focus. It is not considering others above yourself, not considering others' opinions or ways or anything. Pride is a self-focus, me first. That's above God and above others. And so um, you don't want to be wise in your own sight because it is not a a caring for one another. You're not going to live in harmony with people if you're wise in your own sight, if you're always in the right, if you're unable to take constructive criticism, if you think you know everything. Nobody likes a know-it-all, right? Nobody likes to know it all. No kid likes to know it all. And adults, even more so, we realize they know less than they think they know. We don't like know-it-alls. And so, don't be wise in your own sight. It's damaging for your own soul, and it's damaging for the relationships around you. So, so don't be that way. And so, Paul here is giving us further um, instruction and warning on not being wise in our own sight, on not being arrogant or conceited. So the way then you avoid being conceited he says in verse 25, is by knowing this mystery. Of not being ignorant of this mystery. Something that was once concealed. Something that is maybe hard to understand. There's a mystery that you need to know. That you can't be ignorant about. That's going to guard you from being wise in your own sight. What's the mystery? Well, it's twofold in the second half of verse 25. It says, a partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. So this is the mystery that we must begin to try to understand if we're not going to become wise or conceited. First part of that is that a partial hardening has come upon Israel. We must know that the hardening of Israel is not complete. And as Paul has already gave himself as an example, right? He says, not all of Israel, these, these people have been cut off. There are a remnant. So it's a partial hardening that has come upon them. Second Corinthians describes it this way. In chapter 3, verse 14, it says, But their minds were hardened. For to this day, this is, this is how the hardness looks. To this day, when they read the Old Covenant, that same veil remains unlifted. Because only through Christ is it taken away. So they're hardened. They, they can't really even see or comprehend the Old Covenant. And even in... Uh, anticipation of the new covenant, they don't get it. They have a veil over their eyes because the only way the veil is removed, the only way to access is Christ. And they are rejecting him. And they are stumbling over him and saying, no, he's not the way. So we will make our own way. So therefore, they're hard towards God's way. They're hardened. They're rejecting God's way. So this partial hardening has come to them even to this day, Paul says. Hebrews chapter 8 gives a a great um, example of this and, and explains it to us carefully. Hebrews 8 says this, For he finds fault with them when he says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, 
Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day I took them by the hand and brought them out of the land of Egypt. Listen. For they did not continue in my covenant. And because they didn't continue, listen to what he says. For they did not continue in my covenant, and so I showed no concern for them. They didn't continue in the covenant. They didn't walk with God as Abraham walked with God and trust in God by faith. They didn't do that. And so he says, so I've shown no regard for them. I've disregarded them. I, I've made the way. I, the Messiah has come. And they've shown no regard for him. And so I have let them be. I've let them walk in their own knowledge, in their own ways, in their own wisdom. And we know that that leads to destruction. They're just following their own hearts. And as Jeremiah tells us, you know, the heart is desperately wicked. It's deceitful. The heart's going to lie to you. Don't follow your hearts, but they're following their hearts. They didn't continue in the covenant, so God has then let them walk away. Then that's the, that's the first part of this mystery, is this partial hardening. How did it happen? When did it take place? It's when they walked away from God. They walked away. The second part of the mystery then is, okay, well, is this hardening of Israel, is this rejection of Israel forever? So the second part of the mystery is no. It says, the partial hardening has come upon Israel, look carefully, until, so it gives us a time, until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. A time frame. It's beautiful. It, it shows us that there is an end in sight until something happens. They will be hardened. But there is an end. There, there is hope coming. When this fullness of the Gentiles comes in, then, then God will save Israel. Look at the next verse. Verse 26. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. So, there's a partial hardening. Follow the timeline. A partial hardening. How long? Well, until the Gentiles come in. Until there's this time, this season where God says, Okay, now I'm going to bring in the end of time. That Gentiles has come in. And then, it says in verse 26, shockingly, says, in this way, all Israel will be saved. So, that verse is got to be the most difficult verse in the Bible. One of them. All Israel will be saved. And that can be so easily misinterpreted. What does it mean that all of them will be saved? We, we must right away say what it does not mean. It cannot mean that all Israel, all Jews of all of history, no matter how they lived, that they will be saved. That they'll get an automatic pass into heaven. That's not what it means. It cannot mean that. Because Jesus, rebuking Jewish people, said these words in Matthew 11. Listen to these hard, judging words that Jesus said. He says, but I tell you to the Pharisees, I tell you, it will be more tolerable tolerable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom than for you. So he's speaking to these Jewish leaders, and he says, on the day of judgment, Sodom's going to have it easier than you. So therefore, your judgment is more severe than Sodom's judgment. And you know the sin of Sodom. Everyone knows the famous sins of Sodom. And he's speaking to Jewish people saying, there's judgment that it's going to be harsher for you on that day. And so, when we read this verse in verse 26, that all Israel will be saved, it cannot mean that all Jews of all time will just get a free pass. Can't mean that. 
because Jesus doesn't allow it. It cannot mean they all get a free pass. And I will admit that before reading this and carefully studying this passage, I read this passage kind of at face value in understanding other parts of the New Testament of who is Israel. Who is Israel? Well, well, Paul mentions that Israel often is, the true Israel is those who are bought by Christ. Those who are in the family of God by Christ. Who is Israel? And so I read this as, well, all Israel will be saved. Meaning that, yeah, all true Israel will be saved. All those who God has called and elected, all those who God has saved and made his family, they'll be saved. Yeah, that makes sense. Clear, simple, straightforward. It's easy to understand that way. That if this Israel, if all of this Israel just means all the people of God, all the, the people that God has called to himself, that they'll be saved? That's straightforward. It's, it's easier to understand that way. Because Paul himself speaks of Israel this way. He says that believers are true Jews. He says that believers are the true circumcision, Romans 2 and, and Philippians 3. Paul himself says that we can be sons and daughters of Abraham, Romans 4 and Galatians 3. He says that we are, including Gentiles, we are the Israel of God, Galatians 6. And so Paul uses this sort of language to include Gentiles, that we can be included in this title, Israel. And so he, it's not far-fetched to say that it could mean that this all Israel means all of God's chosen people, including Gentiles. That they will be saved. And that's, that's easy. But unfortunately, this verse is not that easy. It's not that easy because we, we can't just take it at what Paul has said elsewhere. We have to take things always in context. So what does Paul use the word Israel like in Romans chapter 11? Or even in this paragraph? And then you go out from there. How did he use Israel in this paragraph? This is how you do good Bible study. If you're trying to understand a word or how he's using a word and what does it mean, those are sorts of questions you need to ask while you're reading your Bible, right? Not just read the words and go, uh-huh, checked off. Ask these questions. What does he mean by all of Israel? Who is that? So then you look at the verses around and say, does he use this word Israel here? And then you look at the, the whole chapter. Does he use Israel here? And then the book, does he use Israel here? This is how you begin to understand the words that God has ordained to be used. And then you look at the New Testament. How is Israel used in the New Testament? And how is Israel used in the whole of the Bible and in the covenants? That's how you study your Bible well so you understand passages like this. So you don't just quickly read by them. So then, how did he use this term Israel in this paragraph? Well, in the very verse prior, in verse 25... He says this, I don't uh, want you to uh, misunderstand this, but a partial hardening has come upon Israel. How does he use the term there? A partial hardening has come upon Israel. Does that mean all of God's chosen people? No. He's using the context there to show us all of ethnic Israel. He's using the word as the Jewish people in verse 25. So it only makes sense that he would use that in the very next verse the same way. That Israel means ethnic Israel. Israel. So, all of them will be saved. What does it mean? And how are they saved? Well, verse 26 and 27 give us an understanding. That they're not just all getting a free pass. Let's read verses 26, the second half, and 27. It says, As it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion, 
And he will banish ungodliness from Jacob. And this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. He's going to establish a new covenant. So Hebrews 8, which I quoted a piece from earlier, I'll read a little more. It helps explain this. Hebrews 8, verses 8 to 12. You can follow if you'd like, but, or just listen carefully. Hebrews 8, 8 to 12 says this. For he finds fault with them when he says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. It's not like the covenant I made with their fathers, on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. For they did not continue in my covenant, and so I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days. Pause right there. After those days is parallel with until the fullness of the Gentiles come in. So this is the covenant I'm going to make with them after those days, declares the Lord. Here's what he's going to do. I will put my laws in their minds, and I will write them on their hearts, and I will be their God. And they shall be my people. And they shall not teach each other his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord. So that's a confusing sentence, but he's saying, You won't have to tell people, Know the Lord. Trust in the Lord. Understand who God is. He says, They won't have to teach each other that. He says, For they shall all know me. From the least of them to the greatest. For, and here's why, and here's how they will know him. I will be merciful towards their iniquities. And I will remember their sins no more. So who does he establish his covenant with? This is a new covenant he's speaking of. So Hebrews 8 there that I just read is actually quoting in part Jeremiah 31. So this is not just like something new that the New Testament created. Like, hey, we're just going to, in hindsight, say that he was going to make this new covenant, and this is what it would look like. He's quoting something that was written hundreds of years prior. Who does he establish his covenant with? Is this saying that all Jews of a certain time period in the future will get that automatic conclusion? That if you happen to be living in 2035, and you're a Jew in this year, then you're good. That he's going to save you. That all Israel in that time, if you got Jew as a part of your bloodline, that you're good. That you're saved. All Israel will be saved in the year 2035. Is that what he means by all Israel will be saved at a certain time? That they, they'll be saved regardless of how they live? Now this is a really important question to ask. And for us to understand, not just for the Jews, but for our understanding of the grace of God and salvation. Do we think that anyone ever, by any means, gets to God apart from Jesus? No. The answer is no, and it's always no. People can never get to God, never get to heaven, apart through Jesus. So when you read a passage like, all Israel will be saved, and you just think, well, do they have to come through Jesus? Or is there a separate way for them because they were God's chosen people? There's not a separate way. There never is a separate way. It's always been through trusting in the Messiah. And Jesus is the Messiah. And so they don't come through any other way. And neither don't follow Oprah Winfrey's view of world religions that oh, all ways lead to God. And God will just accept it because he sees their motive. He understands their heart that they're really longing after him. And they just didn't know. That's the whole point of world missions. 
is so they would know. That's the whole point of the Great Commission. God sending you and me out so that people would stop being deceived to think that, oh, I'll get to heaven because I just, I only knew Hinduism. They won't get to heaven unless they know Christ. And so, this does not mean that if there is a certain time period, all Israel will just be swept up and saved apart from a, a saving knowledge of Jesus. They won't be. It's important to ask that. Because if it's true, then what is grace? If people can be saved apart from Jesus, then what was the cross? It was nullified, Paul says in Galatians. They can't. Whether you've been a Christian for 40 years or you're not yet a Christian, you must understand what God is saying here about salvation. That you could rightly claim that God is a lunatic if he's created another way. Apart from the way he said. But he's not. You have nothing to do with that. So then how then did they enter this covenant? If it says all Israel will be saved, and Hebrews 8, quoting Jeremiah 31, says that he's got this new covenant with them, and he's going to be their God, and they won't even have to be taught. They won't even have to teach each other, know the Lord, because everyone's going to know the Lord. How is he going to do it? How are they going to have this covenant relationship? How are they going to have this forgiveness of God? It's by grace, through faith, in Christ. They will repent of their sin, including, listen, the most grievous sin, rejecting Jesus. They'll repent of that. They will become grossly aware of their offense to God by rejecting Jesus. They'll they'll be aware of that. God will make them aware. They will repent of their sin, especially rejecting Jesus. They will turn from their sins and trust in Jesus as their only acceptable righteousness before God. And thus they will be saved. Here in our passage in Romans 11, it says that he will banish, in verse 26, he will banish ungodliness from Jacob. And this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. It's interesting because that is actually a quote from Isaiah 59. And Isaiah 59 reads like this. So have your eyes on verse 26 in Romans 11 here. Look at, look at verse 26 as I read where it's quoted from in Isaiah 59. It says, And a redeemer, not a deliverer, a redeemer will come to Zion, to those in Jacob who will turn from transgression. They're going to repent. So in Romans, it's quoted as, God will banish ungodliness from them. He will force the ungodliness out of them. But Isaiah tells us that looks like repentance. That looks like them turning from their sin and turning to God. They are going to repent. And then in Isaiah 44, it says, I have blotted out your transgressions like a cloud and your sins like mist. Return to me. For, because, return to me, repent, come back to me, because I redeemed you. God has done this. So here, we need to stop and appreciate the gospel of forgiveness. That when there is repentance, when there is a turning from sin, a trusting in God, then there is forgiveness. And that's what he says even earlier as we talked about the, uh, the, the branches on the olive tree, right? He says, you know, if they do not remain in their unbelief, if they don't remain in their unforgiven sin and they turn to me, he says, then they'll be grafted back in. Then they'll be welcomed. Then they'll be forgiven. They'll be mine again. This is when and how all Israel will be saved. There will be a, a time when God will, by his grace, flood out on these people an understanding and a knowledge. And what's beautiful is this teaches us how people are actually saved. 
you included and me included. How do we ever come from being spiritually dead to alive? How did we ever come to a knowledge of Jesus? How did you, a poor, broken beggar, come to meet Jesus? God did it. He did it. And unless he did it, unless he, he initiated your relationship, unless he sought you when a sinner, unless he died for you while you were still an enemy, if he did it any other way, if he left you until you were ready, you'd never come. And so this passage shows us, Israel is an example, how God saves you and me. Is that he will forgive their transgressions, he will remove from them, he will cause them to repent. As, as Acts tells us about Lydia, it says, he granted her repentance. Like God gave her the gift of repentance. And so that's what he will do for Israel one day. Thank the Lord. And he's going to just have this gracious movement of, of their full inclusion, as said earlier in our chapter, their full inclusion How miraculous will that be that these people, as a group once more, will have clarity of sight. They will have repentance of heart. And they will have worship of God in all of His glory. Once again. I long for that for them. Because of what it displays about who God is. God is a faithful God who keeps covenant and steadfast love. So Deuteronomy says, God is this faithful God. And what's interesting is this gospel of forgiveness is for us and it's for them. If you repent, he is faithful. If you come, he will welcome you in. Verse 28 mentions the gospel. It says, as regards the gospel, they are enemies. So currently, they are enemies of the gospel. Why? It says it's for your sake. We've already studied that in verse 11 and verse 15 and verse 19. They are enemies of the gospel. They are rejecting the gospel so that... Gentiles can be saved. God is so gracious. But, it says, as regards to election, as regards to the promises of God, as regards to that, they are beloved. God loves them as a people, and he will pour out his incredible love on them as a people one day for the sake of their forefathers. The promise he made to Abraham, I've made an everlasting covenant with you. He is loving on them. And what's beautiful about this everlasting covenant, this promise, this gift, this calling, he says, I've called them my people, right? Verse 29, look at it. It says, for the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. King James does not do it justice. It says that they are without repentance. That confuses things. The gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. He will not take them back. If he's given a gift, and if he's, if he's called someone, he's not going to take that back and say, ooh, never mind. That's beautiful. That's, that's precious to us. And so this is in obviously in context of Israel, that he's called Israel, and he says he will do this for Israel. He's not going back on his word. But this also rings true of you and me, that when God gives us the gift of the Holy Spirit, and he calls us out of darkness into his marvelous light, the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. He's not going to take them back, because you happen to stumble one day. So we need to hear that based on what we heard last week about continuing in the faith. Some people will go, oh, but I've stumbled. I'm I'm not right with God. The gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. Scripture tells us that the Holy Spirit is a seal until the day of redemption. He's given you the gift of the Spirit. He's not taking it back. He's not. Continuing in the faith is the fruit that you have the Spirit. It's the fruit that He is not pulling back on His Word. God does not change His mind. Numbers 23 tells us, says, he has said, and will he not do it? He has spoken, and will he not fulfill it? Of course he will. God is faithful to his word, unlike 
so many of us. God is not like us. He has done this. Verse 30 and 31 kind of just reiterate what he said earlier in the chapter. For just as, so he's going to say that, that all Israel being saved is not in a unique way. It's not just because they have a bloodline. But it's in the same way that you and I are saved. It's by grace through faith. It's dependent on the mercy of God. It says, for just as you were at one time disobedient to God, but you have now received mercy because of their disobedience. We already discussed that. So they too now have been disobedient in order that by mercy shown to you, the same mercy, they may also now receive mercy. Verse 32 says, For God consigned all to disobedience, that he may have mercy on all. All people he's left in their sinfulness until he has mercy on some. So Paul says, in order, a further warning, in order to keep you from being conceited and wise in your own mind, you need to understand this mystery. You need to realize God's patience, his, his long-suffering with Israel, his long-suffering with you and me. Don't, don't you need God to be patient with you? I, I do. There are days or there are hours where I'm just like, man, if, if the gifts and the calling of God were revocable, he'd be taking them back right about now. Right about now. I do not. I do not deserve to be called a son of God right now. That's where we need to come, right? When we realize our sinfulness, we need to come to that place where we go, this is not for me. I have misrepresented that name, son or daughter of God. I don't deserve this. We need that constant reminder because then we look to him and say, how can you put up with me? And we see again and again and again, page after page, you see, you see the example of Israel, how disobedient they truly were. Like it's, I'm so glad it's recorded for us so that we can see how faithful God is. How patient he really is with the people who reject him. God is so, so patient. And he's so loving. So loving. A love that does not let go towards disobedient people whom he has called. So therefore, if he has been that way with Israel time and time again, and he has something for them, this covenant with them, then he will be that way with us. And scripture tells us his mercy is new every morning. Great is his faithfulness. We need that mercy new every morning. So then every morning, every day, the continuing in the faith, what it looks like is repenting and trusting and worshiping. And repenting and trusting and worshiping. Maybe that's every 15 minutes for you. But it's definitely daily. Repenting of your sin, I'm so unworthy. Trusting in Christ alone, that it's not on my worthiness, but it's on Christ's worthiness, and then worshiping him for it. Repenting, trusting, and worshiping. That's the pattern of this continuing in the faith. That's the pattern of trusting in a patient and loving God. Repenting, trusting, and worshiping. And so Paul will end this chapter with incredible worship. Incredible. At this mystery, he sees this mystery, and he thinks, this makes no sense. But oh, how the depths and the wisdom and the riches and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable is it? He deserves all the praise and the glory and the honor forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. Oh God, sometimes 
the mystery of your word is difficult. Sometimes words are hard for us to comprehend. But God, we are so thankful that you've given us your spirit to, to show us what you mean of the text, not what, what it means to us. We don't care. God, what does it mean to you? This passage means that you are a faithful God. This passage means that you are a covenant-keeping God, that you are a God who will regard your people. And so we thank you for that, because God, we confess to you, even now, that day in and day out, we walk away. That we reject you in, in moments where we choose sin. We say it is more appealing to us than a relationship with you right now. God, that's grievous, and that is... It should be heartbreaking for us. And so we pray that, yeah, even today that you would begin to do that more in us, that you would break our hearts over our sinfulness and our disobedience to you. Because in that, in a brokenness of spirit, in a uh, regarding ourselves as unworthy, we come to a greater place of, of trusting in Christ's worth and in his work on our behalf. And so we thank you for the gospel. We thank you that there is mercy, not just for us, not just for Israel, but for all who would come, all who you call according to your purpose. God, we thank you and we praise you for it. We want you to get all the honor and the glory forever, ever.